From WAMU 88.5 at American University in Washington, welcome to the Kojo Nandi Show, connecting your neighborhood with the world. Later in the broadcast, Tech Tuesday explores the arrival and implications of self-driving automobiles. But first, the latest on the chaotic situation in Baltimore, where law enforcement is struggling to remain in control as protests about the death of a young man who was involved in a violence incident with city police have evolved in some cases into riots. Maryland Governor Larry Hogan declared a state of emergency in Baltimore yesterday, calling on the National Guard to help restore calm to the city. Joining us to explore the state and local response to these events is Boyd Rutherford. He is the Lieutenant Governor of Maryland. He joins us by phone. Mr. Lieutenant Governor, welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Kojo. This is a very fluid situation. Yesterday, the governor called on the National Guard to come to Baltimore. State police has requested reinforcements. The mayor declared a curfew. What would you say are the immediate priorities for those organizing the state and local response today? Well, the immediate priority is making sure the streets are safe, uh, that we've contained the, uh, the violence, the lawlessness, and so we have the support, as you said, the uh, uh, National Guard is on the streets now. They've been deployed at Cree, uh, key infrastructure facilities. Uh, we have the state police as well as other uh, state law enforcement and uh, allied uh, agencies as well, including uh, D.C.'s Metropolitan Police are assisting us. We have fire assets out there from all of the counties surrounding Baltimore City, including D.C. Fire. And so it's making sure that the uh, the streets are calm and safe. Um, what do you see when you look at what's happened in Baltimore during the past two weeks, particularly in what's happened since the weekend? Right, right. Um, you know, the... the what started, I'd say, Saturday as a peaceful protest, it, uh, we had a couple of folks who agitated the crowd and played into the hands of some frustrated youth in particular. And they took it upon themselves to become destructive. Um, that continued and, and more driven by some of the young people uh, that were just you know, disaffected and, you know, committed crimes, and uh, the city just was overwhelmed. And so we had to step in. It's my understanding that the governor has temporarily moved his office to Baltimore. Um, Mm -hmm. How long do you think that will last? At what point? What will be the decisive factor that would cause him to feel it's appropriate to go back to Annapolis? Well, the the governor and I have offices in Baltimore City anyway. And so um, as far as today is concerned, he's working out of Baltimore. I'm at the uh, Maryland Emergency Management Agency, which is our um, uh, emergency operations center. And I've been here. I was here late last night, uh, midnight or beyond, and been here since first, first light this morning. And so we're coordinating activities. I think a lot is going to be what happens tonight in terms of how long we're in Baltimore, the governor's in the Baltimore office, uh, but he wanted to make sure that resources were there, were available to the mayor and the Baltimore city officials uh, to provide whatever support they needed. Our guest is Boyd Rutherford. He is the lieutenant governor of Maryland. How will the response to last year's events in Ferguson inform your administration strategy in the days ahead? A lot of people in Missouri reacted negatively to police there last summer, police that they felt were militarized to the point that they resembled an occupying army. Yeah, well, um, as you saw, we didn't roll out the military uh, equipment. Baltimore City was the first line. They're the first responders. It's their jurisdiction. And uh, they decided to take an approach that was different than what was done in uh, Ferguson. Um, When they could no longer control what was happening, the state came in. 
so it's it is a different approach. But at this point, the city, including the residents, want a strong support from the state as well as allied agencies. Schools are closed in Baltimore today. Public transit shut down in parts of the city. At what point would the administration and I guess the mayor of Baltimore feel it's appropriate for young people to be back in school? There are concerns that if they're not in school then they can be on the street contributing to the chaos. Right, right. I understand that, and that was a concern. That was a call by Baltimore City and their superintendent in terms of the schools. Uh, one of the concerns that they had was being able to control the kids if the kids decided to, to walk out. Um, the, the incidents yesterday occurred right after school let out. That's what started at Mondaman Mall. Um, and so, they, you know, they weighed their concerns in the city. The governor did not make that decision. That was a city decision. What answers are you looking for, Mr. Lieutenant Governor, when it comes to the investigation into Freddie Gray's death itself, the event that set off this unrest? Well, um, I, I'd say that this event was kind of the, the, the final, for some people, you know, something that ignited frustration that had been occurring for many, many years. Um, what we need to find out is what actually happened to this young man. Um, how was it that he was arrested and he was injured? Uh, it appears he was injured during, possibly during the arrest, but not at that severe case where he's no longer conscious when he's taken out of the, the van. So we need to know exactly you know, how or as best as possible how those injuries occurred um, and then get to the bottom of it. To what degree do you feel the conversation in the weeks, the months ahead will be one about the wisdom of the policing strategy that has been at work in Baltimore and some other cities since the 1990s, an aggressive, Mm -hmm. tough-on-crime policing strategy that was embraced by mayors from Rudy Giuliani in New York to then-Baltimore Mayor Martin O'Malley in Baltimore? Well, I, I, I do think it, it had already started a discussion. We've been talking about that, particularly as it's been related to our heroin efforts, uh, in terms of we can no longer afford to be uh, locking up nonviolent offenders. I would like to say that there's a distinction between what uh, you, um, um, Giuliani did in New York with his zero tolerance and the street sweeps, which Martin O'Malley was doing in Baltimore City. It was quite different in terms of what uh, O'Malley did in Baltimore, and that definitely started this whole antagonistic viewpoint between the police and the community. So, um, yeah, no, that we've started that conversation in our administration, particularly as it relates to the uh, drug offenders. Um, but, you know, that's been discussed, our, our um director of the governor's office of crime control and prevention we're looking at uh, criminal justice reform uh, a number of pieces of legislation were passed in the legislature which we plan to support we were actually going to sign some of those those bills today uh, so we're taking a different approach <clears throat> than what the previous governor had taken when he was mayor of baltimore Finally, Lieutenant Governor, what concerns do you have for Baltimore's ability to recover from these events? This is a city with a lot of people living in poverty, a lot of people worried about the level of economic opportunity available to them. Yes, I am very concerned because one of our main objectives was economic development throughout the state. And we need Baltimore to be a catalyst of economic development. We need it to be one of a part of the engine of growth for the state. And I am very concerned in terms of what this can do in terms of future investment uh, from both inside and outside the city. So uh, we will work. We'll continue to work to help rebuild. Uh, one of the things that's going on now, we've through our governor's office of constituent services, we've organized over a thousand volunteers who are on the street now helping to clean up, as well as get the word out that this isn't you know what was going on the last couple of hours overnight is not the Baltimore that we want. Boyd Rutherford is the Lieutenant Governor of Maryland. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Kojo. Going to take a short break. When we come back, it's Tech Tuesday. We'll explore the arrival and implications of self-driving automobiles. I'm Kojo Nandi.
You're listening to the Kojo Namdi Show on WAMU 88.5. Coming up later today at 2 on Fresh Air, Louis C.K. He talks about the latest season of his FX comedy series and bombing as a young comedian. That conversation when Fresh Air starts at 2 o'clock on WAMU 88.5. <laughs> WAMU 88.5 and NPR's Diane Rehm will host a cruise to the Bordeaux region of France this summer from July 25th to August 2nd. The voyage includes traveling on the Garonne and Dodonia rivers, wine tastings at regional chateaux and estates, culinary walking tours, and daily excursions. Pre-cruise days in Toulouse or a post-tour in the Loire Valley are available. More information is at drshow.org. Support for WAMU 88.5 comes from Glen Mead, an independent trust company founded in 1956 by the Pew family, providing investment and wealth management to families, endowments, and institutions. Michael Hickey, 202-292-3133. And from General Dynamics IT Cloud Solutions, providing your enterprise with secure federal cloud solutions. General Dynamics Cloud Solutions, gdit.com slash cloud. And from your local nationwide insurance agent, dedicated to helping protect what's most important to you. Providing insurance coverage as your life changes. Local Springfield nationwide agent Richard Stone can provide info on joining the nation. One day, your self-driving car could pick you up, drive you to your destination while you check email or read the paper, and then go park itself. But as soon as this summer, the car next to you on the highway could be making its own decisions about accelerating, braking, and even steering in certain circumstances. Automakers are beginning to put sophisticated sensors, cameras, lasers, and radars into their new models. The devices feed data to an onboard computer that calculates things like distance from the car in front of you and then takes over driving at lower speeds if you let it. Since experts blame the huge majority on traf- of traffic accidents on human error, they say autopilot can be much safer. But the arrival of semi-autonomous driving raises all sorts of questions about liability, driver training, and hacking. Joining us for this Tech Tuesday conversation is David Friedman. He is Deputy Administrator with the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. David Friedman joins us in studio. Welcome. Thank you very much, Kojo. Glad to be here. Also with us in studio is Aaron Kessler, automotive writer with the New York Times. Aaron, thank you for joining us. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. And joining us by phone is Brad Sturtz, Senior Manager of Corporate Communications at Audi of America. Brad Sturtz, thank you for joining us. Thanks. Pleasure to be on. Aaron Let's take a look at the technologies that these new cars use to take over some of the decision-making on the highway. There are already cars on the road that have so-called adaptive cruise control. How does it work? Uh, Sure, Kojo. The adaptive cruise control uh, essentially takes the traditional cruise control uh, the next step, which is to monitor the car in front of you and automatically slow you down. Uh, And what some automakers have, have offered is really a way where you can travel fairly long distances without ever having to touch the brake. So the car, the car, you, you, you set the cruise control for the speed you want, say, 50 miles an hour. And as you go down the road, if a car in front of you is below that speed, you'll automatically slow down all the way to a stop. So if you get to a stoplight, it'll just bring you to a stop, and then it'll pick up again. And so you can travel, in theory, you know, 100 miles or more without ever touching the brake. As opposed to current cruise control where you do your own braking. Correct. At current cruise control, you have to sort of be ready to step in and shut it off when the time is right. Brad, Audi's newest Q7 model, a sport utility vehicle, comes out in January, equipped with traffic jam assist technology. How will it make its own decisions on the road? Uh, that is a uh, – there's a zero to five scale of autonomous vehicles. And right now we're talking about with the Q7 a level two um, uh, grade of uh, technology. And this is called semi-autonomous. And in this type of technology in a traffic jam situation on a freeway or an interstate, the car can handle uh, a portion of the driving task uh, using things like adaptive cruise control and some additional sensors and uh, can allow you to relax a little bit so you don't have to be gripping the steering wheel. The The thing with this type of technology, though, is every so often the, the driver needs to check in, such as grabbing the steering wheel, and let the uh, car know that they really are there paying attention still. David Friedman, you have said that the biggest benefit of these futuristic-sounding features is safety. Why is it safer to have a computer making drive-in decisions than a human? 
Well, what it comes down to is human nature. As humans, we make errors. The great thing is in our daily lives, we can learn from those errors and do better the next time. The problem is if you're in a car and you make an error, you may not live to learn from that error or someone else may not. In fact, in 2013 alone, 32,719 lives were lost because of traffic crashes and 94% of that was because of human error. So if we can shift some of the decision making from people to advanced computers and sensors, we have the potential to save thousands of lives on our roads over time. If you'd like to join the conversation, give us a call at 800-433-8850. Send us a tweet with the hashtag TechTuesday at Kojo Show or email to kojo at org. Do you own a car with adaptive cruise control? How do you like it? Would you like to own a car that can take over accelerating, braking, and steering for short periods of time? 800-433-8850. You can also go to our website, kojoshow.org, ask a question or make a comment there. Aaron, another so-called active safety feature is lane centering. How does that work? Correct. Well, well, essentially what lane centering does is if you're starting to drift out of your lane, it'll bring you back into the, It'll essentially correct what you're about to do, which is drift out. And that could be drifting off the road or it could just be drifting into the lane next to you on the highway. And so in certain ways, what's going to happen with some of these technologies in terms of semi-automated is you're going to have lane centering, which keeps you in your lane, and you have adaptive cruise control, which controls your speed. You merge those two things together, and pretty soon you have a car that can drive itself down the highway. But lanes are not always perfectly parallel. And I remember as a child watching adults drive, the thing that used to fascinate me the most was the very small movements from right to left that they would make when they were driving to simply adjust to changes, I guess, in the lack of parallelism in lanes. Well, you're exactly right. And that's one of the things that the companies have struggled to figure out is a computer can be very precise. And so that can you know, the, the car can be programmed to keep you exactly in the middle of the lane. But what people discover is it feels strange to them. It feels artificial because they're not used to that because a human driver doesn't drive with that kind of perfection. So they're trying to build into their algorithms ways to kind of give it a little leeway so it's not perfect. So it kind of sways just a little bit to make it feel more natural so people will accept it. Um, it's, it's certainly a fascinating <laughs> It really is. Google made a splash with its futuristic self-driving test car with a laser mounted on the roof that scans 360 degrees around the car. But the lasers and radars and cameras in the new batch of commercial cars are invisible to the uninitiated. Where are all these, these devices and what do they do? Aaron, I'll start with you. In terms of within the car? Well, yeah. they're, they're, they're mounted in the um, right behind the mirror. You'll see these large things that look like you know, a plastic enclosed secret box, right? But that has lasers and radars and other things in it. You'll have uh, cameras and lasers mounted on the grill of the vehicle. You'll have them mounted behind. Some of them have, have them mounted in the, uh, in, in, the, in the trunk looking back, and others have them in the, the side mirrors to look to the side. And so they're kind of all over the place, and you don't really notice them being there. They're not visible, but they're, they're giving you this 360-degree awareness that the car can sort of figure out exactly where things are. Where are they in the Audi, Brad? Uh, the, uh, the device you mentioned on the Google uh, car is a military-grade LiDAR system uh, scanner, and those, of course, were on the roof. Now we have embedded those where they're just slightly bigger than a hockey puck in the uh, front grill of the car. If you're not, or you're not paying attention, you may not see it, or in the back. Uh, it could be on the sides as well. It just depends on the the cost of the of the scanners when it actually reaches production. But um, it's an interesting point because you have a whole variety of sensors and cameras, all of which are providing sort of redundant views of the environment around the car in a 360 degree way, in which the technology is never blinking. It sees the whole area, and if something isn't quite clear, then another sensor or camera is picking it up. So you have 3D video cameras, you have mid-range radars, laser scanners, and ultrasonic all around the car getting a clear picture of the road. Approved. David Friedman? Well, this is really exciting technology. Now, as we look at this technology, one of the things we always think about is today 
while most of the human error comes from drivers, once the car starts driving itself, now we've got to look at where the other potential sources of error are. What is the company doing to make sure that they've got a process in place that that system works in all the circumstances where it's supposed to? Or even look at the Audi system. They talk about the driver having to check in. Well, what do you do if that driver falls asleep? What do you do if that driver checks out? All the automakers need to make sure that they have systems in place so that the driver is always in the loop. And our research has shown that can be really, really challenging. So even in these vehicles, you've got to think about the car, making sure the technology is always safe and working right, but you've always got to make sure you've got ways of keeping the driver effectively in the loop. And that's an, Go ahead, that's please, Brad. That, that's an interesting point, and it's a point I wanted to emphasize, too, because the uh, technology that will be coming out in the uh, beginning of next year uh, is a level two where just because of the level of the autonomous driving, you do need to check in. In about two or three years, you're going to see technology where the car is doing virtually all of the driving up to a uh, limited speed of, say, 37, 40 miles an hour in a traffic jam. And when you get to that level, it's going to be crucial for the car to have a very clear what we call a human machine interface so that the car and the driver know who's in charge when it's time to take over there's visual there's auditory and even vibration type uh, signals for the the human driver to take over and it, it, it's very clear and obvious when the car is at it, at its limits of performance and, and kojo you had mentioned the the lanes being sometimes swervy and as anyone here in this region knows sometimes the lanes are not even marked all that well they'll kind of they'll kind of fade away for a while and they'll come back so the cars at this point are not so sophisticated that they know how to deal with that so the driver a lot of times will have to be at least aware if they if they start going down the the road to a point where the lanes either fade through or disappear altogether the car is going to basically yell at them that they need to take back over Volvo and Tesla will hit the market this spring and summer with some autopilot capabilities at lower speeds. What will we see from them? Uh, we will see. Well, well, Tesla is, is an interesting case because they've promised what they call autopilot, which they say will work even at highway speeds, which will make them the first automaker to offer highway speed, so-called semi-automated driving. Um, what Volvo is promising is something that will work up to about 30 miles an hour, designed for traffic jams, a little bit like what Brad has said about the Audi. Um, the idea is you're stuck in traffic. You would be able to hit, you know, hit, hit the button, take over uh, the steering and the pedals, and sort of sit back and relax and let the car drive you through the rather tedious portion of your commute. And then once traffic picks up again, you would take back over. Now, Volvo, similar to Audi, is saying that they prefer that you keep your hands you know, on the wheel and that you remain ready. Uh, but the technology itself is, is basically driving the car. It's automatically following the car in front of you at whatever speed it's doing, whatever turns it's doing, um, until traffic picks up again. Here now is Lisa in Bethesda, Maryland. Lisa, you're on the air. Go ahead, please. Thanks, Kojo. I'm a longtime listener, first-time caller. Thank you. Um, I love your show. Anyway, um, I have adaptive cruise control on my Prius. And I really like it. When I first started using it, it made me really nervous. You know, I would turn on cruise control, and then I would notice that the car was pacing itself according to the car in front of me. Um, but as I got used to it, I discovered that it really takes some of the um, stress out of long drives. It's a real, it, it, it feels like magic, you know, like the car is helping me. You no longer yell at the car in front of you? Well, no, it's just that you don't have to, uh, you know, be alert to when you need sure. to brake. Sure. So it's, working out, will... so it's working out very well for you. You're happy. It is. Okay. It is. It's, and, so anyway, that was my comment. I also have a question. Sure. Um, uh, I think, I, I don't know the data, but I think that a lot of the um, uh, people who are injured by cars these days are injured in accidents in it in which at least one of the drivers is impaired, usually by alcohol. And so with the self-driving cars, I wonder if they're building in a breathalyzer or some technology that would prevent drunk people from driving. David? Well, that that's a really exciting uh, area to talk about. When we're talking about the future of safety, the automated cars are what often gets a lot of the attention, but there's a whole other technology we're working on with the auto industry, which is called DADS driver alcohol detection system for safety, where literally, either from a, a 
a normal breath in your vehicle or from just touching the steering wheel, it can tell if you're above the legal limit and stop you from driving away. So you're right. In, in 2013 alone, about 10,076 lives were lost because of drunk drivers. With this dad's technology, we could help eliminate the majority of those deaths. It's a great future. Lisa, thank you very much for your call. Art on to Ingrid in Ellicott City, Maryland. Ingrid, did we just answer your question? Well, you, you did. Um, although while listening to this, it brought up another another area, and I appreciate your guest, um, you know, addressing the impairment. Um, having had a sibling who was killed in a um, alcohol-related accident with three friends, but um, I also get concerned about, let's say, the teen driver who may be driving mom and dad's car, and now we've also got the texting. So there's that component where they may get complacent because the car is driving itself and may not pay. You still have to pay attention, and I'd be concerned that they would become complacent. Is this another area that's being addressed along with impaired driving? Will um, self-driving cars enhance distracted driving? I, I think that's an excellent question that is yet to be determined. I mean, clearly there's, there's, there's a, an enormous potential here for increased safety, but you do have the human factor, you know, the psychological way that people approach driving. And if they know that, oh, well, you know, if I don't pay attention too closely and I don't brake, well, the car is going to brake for me. Is that going to lead to a bit of complacency, a, a bit more uh, opportunity to in, indulge distractions than you would otherwise? I think it's something that, that the public is going to have to come to terms with over the next few years as this comes online. Brad? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that, that strikes me is when when you get to a highly automated uh, level of technology, we will be able to have a, uh, a driver alertness detection. So there'll be a camera looking at the driver to see if they're paying attention or if, God forbid, maybe they passed out or, or had a heart attack or something of that nature, and the car can take corrective measures to bring the car to a stop or pull off to the side of the road in the future. So there will be a, a way for the technology to see, is this person really uh, aware of what's going on in the, in the road ahead and around, or is it, are they falling asleep, reading a newspaper or something, and really not paying attention? And that will be a crucial part of where we go in the future, too. David? Kojo, I was just going to say, this, this may also mean a new paradigm when it comes to driver training. What, what are the skills that you're going to need that are going to be different when your car takes over part of the time? How much of your driving skills are going to atrophy if you don't have to drive all the time? I mean, even one of your previous callers noted that, you know, you don't have to pay attention as much in terms of hitting the brakes. Well, that's a great convenience, but when does that become a risk? So this is one of the places where we need to partner not only with industry but also with the states to think about how do we change driver education so that the drivers of the future can be ready for vehicles that drive themselves sometimes. At this point, the technology seems to work best on the highway where there aren't stoplights and crosswalks, no dogs darting into the street. What are the challenges of teaching a car to drive itself around city streets? Well, they're... they're Basically, as you mentioned, Coach, you've got all these other factors that come into play. You have pedestrians trying to cross the street. You have bicyclists. You have cross-traffic in general, traffic lights that people don't always obey. And so in a city environment, a car really has to have this awareness, and it has to be able to predict things that are going to happen that maybe a human driver is used to understanding, but a computer is not. Uh, so it's not enough to just know what's around you, you know, so the, the so-called 360-degree awareness. They have to be able to predict what's likely to happen. So, for example, if they know that, that you know, a light is red and someone is still approaching that intersection at a high rate of speed, that they're likely to blow through that. You need to be aware of that. Um, they want to be able to pick up particularly pedestrians, bicyclists, uh, to make sure that you know, these are not vehicles, so the car has to be able to understand that they behave differently. They might be able to make sudden movements that they might not expect um, and how to live in conjunction with a city environment. That, that's why, at least initially, we're going to see this on the highway where that's not an issue. Yes, because Karen tweeted to ask whether self-driving cars will be able to account for bike lanes. Ideally, they would have to do that. Yeah. yeah, I think in the future that's something that would be uh, built into the into the system's recognition. But the other thing to follow on what Aaron said is you not only have to account for the different variables of urban, suburban driving versus uh, highway driving, but you also have to account then with the algorithms of different uh, 
road and pedestrian customs in different countries. You know, in some countries, people wait for the stop, the the crosswalk light to change. In other cases, there's a lot of jaywalking. Uh, there's you know different protocols when it comes to negotiating lanes and roundabouts and all that. And the cars, you know, are eventually going to have to understand how to cope with that in different parts of the world, not just in different uh, driving environments. It's a Tech Tuesday conversation on self-driving cars being closer than you may think. We're inviting you to join the conversation by calling 800-433-8850. Do you trust onboard computers to brake and to steer for you? Send us an email to kojo.wamu.org or shoot us a tweet at Kojo Show. What are the parallels with airplanes? Pilots direct the takeoff and landing. They often engage autopilot once they're at cruising altitude. There are a lot of parallels here, Kojo. In fact, depending on the uh, the company you're working with, already airplanes can land themselves. Um, this brings in a lot of different factors. One, now airplanes, you can afford to put a lot more sensors on board those uh, systems. With cars, part of what we need when we're talking about automation is a democratization of this technology. This shouldn't just be technology for the high-end vehicles. This is technology that anyone should be able to get in their car going forward. So one of the challenges is getting the cost of those sensors down. And the other challenge is making sure those vehicles can share information. That's what an airplane uh, is working towards today, where airplanes can talk to each other, tell each other where they're going. We need the same thing, vehicle-to-vehicle communication for cars as well. Your agency has mandated that all new cars have backup cameras by the year 2018. What's the evidence that those cameras and other so-called active safety features actually cut down on accidents? Well, there's a lot of evidence. Um, backup cameras are one important example. Um, there, each year, there's over 200 fatalities from people. It's a gut-wrenching crash where someone doesn't see a child behind their vehicle, and they run over that child. I mean, as a parent, it's hard to even say that and imagine that, but it happens. And these backup cameras help people see that child behind their vehicle. Moving forward, you may be able to automate that. Now, tie in that camera sensor to a braking system to stop that car from going over someone. Uh, Other automations, we've already required electronic stability control, a simple automation where if someone's going too tightly around a corner and they're going to lose control, the computer will sense that, back off on the accelerator, hit the brakes, and save your life. These are the, the stepping stones to full automation that we've been pushing for years. What role, David, will the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration play in requiring these high-tech self-driving features in new cars and in setting the rules for them? Well, I look at it as two roles. One important role is enabling innovation. We want to help accelerate these technologies so that everyone across the country can have access to life-saving automatic braking systems, for example. We're now uh, actually recommending that consumers go out and buy automatic emergency braking systems. And in our new car assessment program soon, that'll be one of the added check marks automakers can get. But in addition to accelerating innovation, we always have to make sure it's safe because the the technology isn't going to work if consumers don't feel confident that not only is it as safe as today's drivers, but substantially safer. Here, were you about to say something, Brad? Uh, well, it's, it, you raise an interesting point too, and, and this is at a uh, why we often refer to this as uh, a revolution by evolution. Uh, you know, when the almost from the beginning of the automotive era, the federal government has regulated the machine, and state governments have regulated the driver's behavior. Yep. Um, now you're reaching a point where um, those lines are, of course, blurred, and it's going to be important in how we move forward and how these regulation overlaps are dealt with because uh, there, I think to, have, to unlock the innovation, you really need to have some consistent and clear path moving forward. We got a tweet from Colonel Panic who says, it seems to me that smart cruise control has to be able to speed you up too. Well, it, it, it does, uh, at least in most automakers, <laughs> uh, vehicles. What tends to happen is you set the speed you want. So you'll say, I don't want to go 70 miles an hour, or I want to go 55. And then it'll slow you down when there's someone in front of you. And then when that person either moves away or speeds up, it'll speed you up to that uh, level that you've set. I guess. And, and ahead, we, have a, we have a technology in our cars right now called PreSense 
that if there is if the computer detects that there is a potential accident, it will either speed the car up or slow it down to minimize as much as possible any potential impact. And it'll then also tighten your seatbelt, close your sunroof, raise the the windows if they're down. So again, it's just taking emergency precaution moves in the event of a potential of a of a collision. Got to take a short break. When we come back, we'll continue our Tech Tuesday conversation on self-driving cars. You can also send us a tweet at Kojo Show using the hashtag Tech Tuesday if you have a question or comment, or go to our website, kojoshow.org. Join the conversation there. I'm Kojo Nandi. Coming up at 1, Baltimore explodes. Maryland's governor calls in the National Guard as protests grow. Plus, immigration close up. The complex challenges and stories behind the influx of migrants from Central America. Today at 1 on the Kojo Nam, the show on WAMU 88.5 and streaming at kojoshow.org. Let your old truck, motorcycle, or boat support the programs you enjoy on WAMU 88.5 when you donate it. Call 1-866-WAMU-444. That's 1-866-926-8444. Or visit WAMU.org and click on support. Thanks. Support for WAMU 88.5 comes from Google Express, where shoppers can buy online with stores like Costco and Walgreens all on one website and have items delivered the same day. More information and a downloadable app are available at express.google.com. And from Delcor Technology Solutions, helping associations, nonprofits, and our community connect with progress since 1984, offering IT strategy and support, including hosting, project management, and system selection. D-E-L-C-O-R.com. Right now it's sunny, 65 degrees in northwest Washington. Lows will be in the 50s tonight. It's 1244. It's Tech Tuesday and we're discussing self-driving cars with Aaron Kessler. He's an automotive writer with the New York Times. Brad Sturtz is Senior Manager of Corporate Communications at Audi of America. And David Friedman is Deputy Administrator with the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. I'd like to go directly to the phones to Glenn. In Manassas, Virginia, Glenn, you're on the air. Go ahead, please. Hi, Glenn. Can you hear me? Glenn apparently can no longer hear me. Glenn, are you there? Yes, I'm here. Go right can ahead. you hear me? We, we sure can. Good. Okay. Anyway, I'll start all over again. Uh, anyway, thanks for taking my call. I will take the answer uh, off the air. Okay. My thought was this. With uh, multiple sensors installed in a car, uh, I imagine it would go to some kind of a centralized computer or something. And my idea was this. If you were involved in an accident, uh, could you design the computer so that it would, number one, uh, be well protected like a uh, flight recorder and it could be used to help reconstruct an accident, not only what the car's actions were, the conditions, and the uh, driver's actions. And I'll take my answer off the air. Thank you very much for your call, Glenn. But since you raised that issue, I'll add another one from Jose in Washington, D.C., and our panelists can answer both questions. Jose, what's your question? Yeah, same. I'm just wondering what the insurance lobby or if they're, you know, who's going to be liable? I mean, obviously it's a computer, so it's liable to, you know, um, corruption and hacking you know, who is going to be responsible for accidents? Is it the software companies? Is it the car companies? Is it the driver? Um, and, yeah, I'll take my answer out there as well. Thank you very much for your call. So if, in fact, the software or the computer can reconstruct what led up to the accident and give an indication of what was responsible for the accident, where then do the insurance companies and liability come in? I'll start with you, Aaron. Sure. Well, certainly when it comes to the idea of of every car having the equivalent of a black box, I mean, that that does open up an entire world for not only figuring out what happened with individual actions, but but studying them on a much larger scale. I mean, today, 
almost none of the accidents that happen in this country really come with rich data that people can study and go back and look and see what happened. If there's a fatal accident, unfortunately, there is a, a larger amount of data that's gathered. Um, but again, the, the hundreds of thousands of other crashes, uh, there's very little that's really known about them. Uh, so the idea that there could be a much richer set of information that's gathered and studied and used to improve safety is uh, is certainly one that, that holds a lot of promise. Uh, in terms of the insurance companies, though, uh, I, I think the caller touched on something that is going to be one of the the most potentially contentious aspects of this, because the answer is no one at this point really knows how this is going to play out. Uh, in theory, if the car is depending on the driver to jump in at a moment's notice, there can be an argument that the driver himself or herself is still responsible, but then again, if it's supposed to break automatically and it doesn't and you get into an accident, is that the automaker's fault? Is it a flaw in the software? Um, what's likely to happen is many of these things are going to wind up in court. There are going to be a series of court cases that come out at the local level and otherwise, and, and that's going to sort of build a body of law, of law for how this is going to be accepted. But the truth is nobody really knows. Is that something Audi is concerned about, Brad? Yeah, I mean, this is obviously one of the big questions from a societal point of view of, and, and regulatory point of view of, of how this is uh, set up in the next several years. Um, what, let me address it from a technology standpoint because I think he, the first caller had two issues that are worth noting. Uh, the first is there is a consideration and debate going on of the role of a data event recorders might have in piloted driving, uh, autonomous driving in the future. Um, I think that's something that we'll continue to work with the regulators on, uh, examine the privacy issues there, who maintains the data, and so forth. Those are all questions that we're actively looking at right now. The, the other question, though, about the central processor, and, and he was spot on with that, we're, one of the things that has allowed us to make a big leap forward is the ability to take what used to take an entire trunk full of computing equipment and boil it down to something that's a little bit bigger than an iPad or about the size of a laptop. So you have all of the all of the data being processed, all the data fusion, and all the uh, response to that data being handled at an electronics control unit that is uh, at now at a, at a packaging size where it doesn't ruin your whole trunk for usability. And um, when it comes to insurance making decisions based on all of the data that is in that, you're saying. As, as Aaron has said, that this could end up in the courts in the future? You think the same, Brad? Yeah, I mean, and it, it already does in accidents, and I think the courts will be that's able true. to uh, expect these sort of things to continue, and that's where we want to say, is the driver really the pilot, the person in control of the car at all times, even when he or she activates the autonomous driving mode? Hmm. And these are legal issues that we need to sort through over the next couple of years. David Friedman. Uh, I think everyone here is right that ultimately the courts are going to have an important role to play. NHTSA is also going to have a, an important role to play here. And we're going to hold industry to a very high standard. The same high standard we hold them to right now is if there are errors in the program, if there are um, problems with the mechanical system, the sensors, etc., it's their job to find those problems and fix them. And if they don't, we've got a team of experts whose job is to make sure that we look into those problems, and make sure that they fix it. Glad you mentioned that because your agency has in the past been criticized for being too slow to act on some hardware issues like potentially defective airbags from a Japanese company, faulty ignition switches, and General Motors vehicles. What challenge do complex self-driving software um, present for your agency? Well, look, the, the software presents, I think, the same challenge for all of us. I mean, when you look, for example, um, at a simple cruise control, system. You can literally have millions of lines of, of code in just a simple cruise control system. When you have adaptive cruise control, lane keeping, all these other technologies, the software, the sensors, the hardware, it expands dramatically. And that's why the President and Secretary Fox and Administrator Rosekind have asked Congress for some additional resources so that we can have more people on the track of these technological problems, of these technological risks, and so that we can have the authorities we need. If we find a problem that's an imminent hazard, we need to have the tools to force the industry to act right away. And we need to have the people and the uh, computer resources to be able to find these needles in the haystack before anyone's lives are put at risk. 
On to the telephones again. Elizabeth in Rockville, Maryland. Your turn. Hi, how are you? Thanks for having my call. Um, With all this technology that's coming up, I was wondering what kind of an effect this will have on gas mileage for cars in the future. And I'll take my answer off the air. Know anything about that, Aaron? Well, it's a little hard to know for sure, but I think most people assume that it would improve gas mileage in the same way uh, you might have seen some of the recent uh, coverage about the metro and how they want to automate some of the drive because it smooths the ride. And so anything that sort of smooths the ride of the car is going to make it more efficient uh, from a gasoline perspective. And so I think most people think it will likely improve as it goes. Elizabeth, thank you for your call. Brad, we hear so much about hacking these days from banks to big box stores. So how do we know our self-driving cars won't get hacked into? Well, you, it's a, it's incumbent on us, and, and we need to show to the public as well that we have a su- sufficient number of precautions or gateways, if you will, that keep the uh, electronics that are handling the driving function separate from things that can be uh, pulled in from uh, somebody passing by or using some sort of device. Um, you know, you do have in our cars a, a Wi-Fi a broadband pipeline into the car, but that's still separate from the functions of the car um, that are handling the driving tasks. So, um, you know, we uh, we put a high emphasis on maintaining that security and that uh, and that data protection for the for the car itself. David, you mentioned this earlier, but I'd like you to reiterate it. The new director of your agency says one of his priorities is to get these safer, semi-autonomous features into cars at all price points, not just luxury brands. How difficult will that be? Well, I think historically we have seen a lot of technologies do start off in luxury brands, and then as the volumes go up and as uh, companies get more experience with them, the prices come down and they spread out. We'd really like to see automakers short-circuit that as much as possible. I want someone who's buying a an entry-level vehicle that maybe costs $12,000 to someone co- buying a vehicle at over $100,000 to all be able to have that safety technology, especially think about our teens. Our teens are all too often uh, the people who are at highest risk of getting in crashes and losing their lives. That's why insurance rates are so high when uh, your teens end up on your insurance rates. We need to make sure that the technology isn't just for um, you know successful career professionals. This has got to be technology that our teens, our, our mothers, our fathers, and our kids can all use to keep themselves safe. Aaron, okay. go ahead, please. I was going to say, and, and the government, in theory, would have a role to play here going forward. You mentioned backup cameras earlier in the show, and, and what really helped spurn the, the, the proliferation of those cameras was the coming uh, federal mandate that they'd be required. And so suddenly an item that had cost you know $1,000 or more, you know, just because of the economies of scale of producing a lot of these things, the companies have now brought them down to almost nothing. Um, and so if there are future mandates to require certain features like this that could play a role in getting it uh, distributed across a larger spectrum. If I could add one thing real quickly, too. I mean, I think just the rapid pace of electronics improvements and and cost reductions is playing a huge role. Let's remember that in 2004, DARPA, the the defense agency's uh, research arm, had put out a challenge to see who could go to, who could finish a 150-mile drive autonomously. Not one car finished, and the furthest any of them got was 7.3 miles. Mm-hmm. And now here we are, you know, we just completed a drive of 560-plus miles. Uh, Delphi, with engineers behind the wheel, drove coast to coast in just 10 years. And what you're seeing and what's allowing this to happen so rapidly in the last couple of years is the price and the size of uh, electronics computing for mobile technologies is coming way down and the cost of the sensors is getting much smart, uh, much lower and the and the packaging's much smaller so you have a much greater uh, impact with these technologies becoming more and more affordable Jesse has a question on an issue we haven't dealt with as yet Jesse your turn hi uh, yes thanks for taking my call I uh, just my question relates to this exactly what you're, you're you're talking about in terms of cost and uh, over time cost coming down uh, but you know I, 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 I just wonder sometimes what world some of you folks live in. The vast majority of us out here rely on used cars or, you know, I, I just remember fondly when I bought a Rambler when I was going to college. And I, and I remember saying I, I wanted four wheels, an engine, 
and, uh, you know, the doors to open, the windows to come down. I wasn't interested in any radio, any AC. Uh, and, you know, I'm 70 now, and I, I kind of like, you know, I, 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 I you know, a, a vehicle, I, you know, you say $12,000 might be an entry level. You want vehicle. the bare minimum. For a lot of people, $12,000 is not an entry vehicle. It's a heck of a lot of money. And uh, so I, I, you know, we're getting, you know, this is, I call this technology creep, where you, where you need to buy something that's not inherent to the operation of the vehicle. Uh, so that's, that's my Jesse comment. is obviously concerned about whether we will be, as a result of this, pricing cars beyond the reach of people who are only able to afford the bare minimum. Well, I think one of the important things to consider, prices is, is really important, but so is the economic harm that a car crash creates, the emotional harm that a car crash creates. In 2010 alone, um, car crashes cost our society about $900 billion when it comes to both the cost of the crashes themselves as opposed to the pain and suffering that result from those car crashes. We're talking costs of close to $2,000 per person per year due to car crashes. If we can move from a world where crashes no longer happen, we're going to save money, we're going to save lives, and we're going to have a much more efficient transportation system. And I think that's a future that, as a department, we're working towards, and I think most people will embrace that kind of future. We've just got to get the technology moving, whether it's through better information, uh, stronger regulations, and more proactive efforts on the part of industry. I, th I think the caller does raise a You only have about 10 seconds. Oh, the, the caller does raise a point about used cars. Just going forward, if this is going to trickle down to the, the lower levels of what's affordable, they need to make sure it can somehow be retrofitted. Otherwise, people are going to be without. Uh, Aaron Kester is an automotive writer with the New York Times. Bad starts is senior manager of corporate communications at Audi of America. And David Friedman is deputy administrator with the National Traffic Highway Safety Administration. Thank you all for joining us. And thank you all for listening. I'm Kojo Nandi. Coming up tomorrow on the Kojo Nandi show, the results of D.C. special elections, including the race for the Ward 8 seat of former council member Marion Barry. Then at one from George Washington's home distillery to Prohibition, a new exhibit explores more than two centuries of alcohol in American history. The Kojo Nandi show, noon till two tomorrow on WAMU 88.5 and streaming at kojoshow.org. More of the Kojo Namdi show ahead on WAMU 88.5. Then later today on Fresh Air, comedian Louis C.K. talks about the latest season of his FX series and his uncomfortable moments early in his career when he bombed on stage as a young comedian. Thanks for listening to the Kojo Namdi show. And if you're already a member of WAMU 88.5, thank you for your support. If not, it's easy to give online at WAMU.org. Just click the donate button and thanks.